my colleague, Dr. Rinku, thought it apt to take up this topic for our uh, talk since there has been a lot of noise on this for some time now and on account of some moves recently uh, by the government to introduce some changes in textbooks and the history syllabus for UGC, which has brought it back into focus. Since we have been working on this very area and uh, we shall shortly introduce the main aspects of our work as well in the course of this presentation, uh, it was relevant for us to do a recap of the considerations that we had in mind vis-a-vis -vis the prospects of this latest government move. Now, to shortly provide a background, a word on the uh, state of Indian's self-awareness and historical awareness and the colonial scheme. One of the main reasons that Indians lost control over the narration of their own history is, in my mind, to a great extent, because of their own poor sense of history. Indians have preserved their idea of the past, um, the memory of their ancestors and the rulers, by weaving historical characters and events into innumerable legends, edifying stories and eulogic accounts, etc. We are therefore, in spite of such a rich record, uh, left with little or almost no reliable historical account with which to reconstruct Indian history. Indian history has mainly been compiled uh, from material sources like epigraphic and numismatic evidence, information gleaned from meager and semi-legendary literary accounts, writings of foreign travelers. But this by itself is not the problem. Rather, it was the point of time when this began which was when the British started bringing this landmass under their governance and began meticulously documenting its history, geography, and society. As an example, I cite Francis Buchanan. He was a surveyor appointed by the British in the early 19th century, whose writings are greatly relied on for information on the 19th century India. He was not really qualified for the post, being a surgeon by profession, and the reason he came to be regarded by the East India Company as an expert on Indian society and culture and was appointed as surveyor to numerous Indian cities all over India, East, West, North and South, even Nepal, is described by a compatriot by name William R. Pinch in his book Peasants and Monks in British India in the following words. And I quote, Buchanan soon developed a reputation as an irritant to the Orientalist establishment, which was inclined towards a Brahminical interpretation of Indian society. By publishing an essay on Burmese Buddhism, Buchanan juxtaposed the egalitarianism of Buddhism against the oppressive hierarchical nature of Brahminism. Buchanan's hatred for the entrenched Brahmin class in India, together with his critical reading of the religious scriptures, marked him out as a man ideally equipped to act as the company's reporter on native matters. So we see the intention of the British in documenting information on Indian culture, history and society comes through in these lines. And consequently, the authority over Indian history writing was from the very inception arrogated to those who bore a hostility towards native Indians and specifically Hindus. Now, in the absence of proper historical accounts and a people largely unconcerned with actual history, the sources were manipulated to establish a narrative detrimental to the interests of the subjects, 
It was put together with the very aim of serving those who wanted to rule over the country and the minds of Indians and not the interests of the ruled. Sources of cultural and historical information which were inconvenient to this purpose were dismissed as myths and law. Indians' interest in historical characters and events has continued to be limited to employing these as a lively mode of storytelling or glorification of their revered characters. So disciplinary historical and sociological studies has largely remained trapped in this mode of how outsiders view us. In the present, the chaos has intensified as this history is now used to serve various contending factional interests in India, which were created out of the same prejudicial narrative. Indians still remain myopic and incapable of grasping the importance of viewing their history as a collective course, that of Hindu India, which I have often stated unequivocally is the only India. There is no other India and the non-Hindu elements of Indian history are merely precipitates of interaction and ingression from outside. These are not to be negated, but cannot be conflated with Indianness. And in my mind, there is no ambiguity on this point. Now coming to the recent upheaval, the damaging account of India's past, first according to the British imperialist motives and later along the lines of Marxist, anti-Hindu and secular liberal ideological scheme was established and perpetuated primarily through the dominant academia who would not tolerate any alternative disquisition. Only recently has this vice grip loosened somewhat with the rise of social media. In the last decade or so, there has been increasing awareness about the distortions present in Indian history. Slowly but surely, a growing number of voices are openly challenging inaccurate portrayals in academics and in print and popular media, which has grown into something of a movement in the last six to seven years. But this buildup has its pitfalls, mainly that popular opinion has become the deciding factor of what should be true history in disregard of considered scholarly position. This popular opinion has neither accountability nor uniformity. It has not passed through a process of academic rigor. Social media, moreover, is a chaotic place of myriad motivations, very often self-seeking. It is often influenced by political and ideological manipulators and the banding together of conflicting reactive interest groups. With its instant factoids, truth claims, and the reactive environment in general, social media is not the place for evolving a discourse on genuine thought process. In fact, uh, the crude and uninformed opinions of reactionary Hindus, if I may use that description, has hurt the cause of Hindu revival rather than serve it. And it is increasingly getting noisier and more senseless. On the part of the government, instead of uh, reappraisal and visionary measures evolving out of the new dispensation, it has been allowed to descend into an unruly, raucous, verbal street fight. The government needs to instead take charge of the discourse and take it to a logical conclusion. The best outcome that social media ferment can produce is the force of change, but it cannot be allowed to control the change. Now, coming to the war of narratives, 
the history of how the war of narratives has panned out in India is actually rather interesting. As we saw at the very foundation, Indian historical and sociological studies were oriented on the imperialist free scale. And a Marxist writings about India started taking root towards the middle of the 19th century, to be precise with the 1857 War of Independence. It received the attention of even Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels, who wrote lengthy uh, articles using the 1857 war as a classic example of the struggle of the downtrodden Indian natives against oppressive British imperialism. This sympathy towards struggles of natives against foreign rulers and monarchy and rule of law in general is an abiding theme in leftist writings. As one can see, how the left and right delineations work in case of America, for example, the representation of the rights of native Indians in USA. Until that time, uh, the Marxists uh, still we see in their drift uh, a favor, it is favorable towards Indians and the portrayal of the 1857 war as a struggle of Hindus and Muslims as a unified brotherhood against a mighty imperialist power is found primarily in Marxist writings, which is not really the case if one reads the first-hand accounts of what really incited the Muslims to get involved in the 1857 revolt. And this was not really the um entirely a, it was a different agenda altogether it was islamic supremacism so the marxist involvement in india predates the great revolutions of the west which brought communists into power in russia and several east european states anyhow throughout the british rule in official correspondence and intelligence dispatches we see this apprehension of russian agencies causing disaffection against british rule and unrest in india after the mutiny as the imperialist writers uh, dubbed the 1857 revolt, and after the immediate aftermath, uh, which was a bloody retribution by the British. But the British made efforts at rapprochement. Uh, general amnesty was declared, and the avaricious and exacting company rule was replaced by bringing India directly under the British crown. The effort was to present British rule as a benevolent and a uh, benevolent uh, empire and a school of cooperative attitude among the natives. With this idea, a minority of uh, elite native members were appointed to the government council formed with the Indian Councils Act in 1861. And in this, the British succeeded to quite an extent. As a result, Indians became divided along two broad sentiments. Those who hoped to reap the benefits held out by British rule to develop the law of Indians, at least for as long as it appeared so, and those who came to resent foreign rule in Toto. The latter, as we know, became the dominant sentiment in time, and with it arose the nationalist version of history. This left the Marxists to carve out their own demography. They tried initially to depict communist themes of oppression and violent revolution in the revolutionary movement, and later in the movement for total independence. But they were not greatly successful because in the words of Subhash Chandra Bose, and I quote, in India, a national awakening is almost, is in most cases heralded by a religious reformation and a cultural renaissance. And Marxism, as we know, is unfavorably disposed towards religion. Its softer version, socialism, uh, did, however, gain traction in the peasant movements and a separate depressed classes movement, which began with B.R. Ambedkar. Uh, 
its ideas of fairness and egalitarianism initially appealed to several nationalist leaders um, and now these were not really lobbies at work at that time rather a complex play of interest groups but these are the lines along which the narratives develop after india gained freedom the communists were left with nothing to project their revolution theories on so and though wider appeal continued to elude them they started gaining ground in the academia and increasingly in their writings they started assuming the mantle of being representatives of the so called depressed classes and any group whose interest they saw juxtaposed with the indian state and the majority hindus which in their eyes it represented the socialist leanings of the total freedom proponents now the new rulers also continued and they started seeing their interest in preservation of this arrangement of deprived versus rich and the dole and anti enterprise framework and they diverged from the aspirations of the hindu masses as a unified interest they took over the mantle of rulers over the teeming masses who can i mean miss their fondness for the garibi hatao slogans the former may be called the centrist position since they continued to rule india uh, for the greater part since independence maybe roughly broadly the inc position indian national congress position and the latter came to be represented by the so called hindu right wing uh, that is the larger hindu uh, nation but it is important to remember that in india both the right and the center are essentially socialists it is no wonder that the bjp continues to preserve the policies and premises of a secular socialist state a lot of the icons including savarkar bose gandhi etc they were also socialists but they went only as far as these corresponded with their ideas of equity and justice it is important also to remember that at present this manifests as a confusion about what really hinduism is and there is no conception of india as a civilization state nor clarity what its nature and structure should be except in crude all indians are hindus depictions and this stems from a completely botched historical and sociological narrative now what has the government response been like uh, this lack of clarity has created the diffidence in hindu character which pleases and panders and placates rather than proclaim confidently what they stand for uh, and surrenders its prerogatives all too soon it is the reason for reluctance of the so called hindu rule to assume the onus of change even when they have the power to do so who can forget that prim announcement of aracharya minister on the subject of rewriting history uh, that they have not uh, rewritten a single chapter in the last 4 years though initially the present government did try to bring more even representing uh, representation by appointing some non marxist historians to the indian council of historical research the ichr but it took just a bit of clamor from the leftist lobby to make the government quail in their intentions needless to say it remains a body firmly in the grip of leftist ideologues the government did introduce a book also on ancient indian knowledge systems knowledge traditions and practices of india the ktpis what they were called for uh, class uh, 11th but it was a non essential uh, non curriculum book but they have not been up to the task of reading out the entrenched marxist academicians from the education boards on the country they had actually appointed some cross grained communists to head the uh, textbook committee 
Nor does the government look like undoing the damaging Marxist influence and put in its place an indic narrative, the far less an assertive re-articulation of the journey of our Hindu nation. But finally, we do hear some positive noises. We are pushing the 75th year of independence now, and the Indian nation finally shows the metal to change an imposed narrative against themselves. Recently, a new draft history syllabus for UGC was brought out by the government. It has a lot of features uh, of course correction, some of which we had in view while drafting our syllabus as well. We will go over these shortly later in this presentation. The suggested changes and the degree of deviation allowed, uh, around 30%, are very sensible and they're necessary to extricate history from the clutches of the Marxists. But not unsurprisingly, it has come under attack from the predictable quarters, yelling saffronization. Whether the government caves in or is gung-ho still remains to be seen. Additionally, a proposal was also floated recently, inviting suggestions for reforms in the content and design of school textbooks, as it is worded. Uh, it is a brief notification which emanated from the Rajya Sabha Secretariat and does not give out much. But what is possible to take away is uh, that a Parliamentary Standing Committee on Education, Women, Children, Youth and Sports has been tasked uh, to gather inputs on uh, 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 suggested changes. Um, it is not really for examination and consideration only. It lists uh, some very open-ended and broad points, but from these it is not clear whether they aim at an overhaul or merely a patchwork of some and editing and insertions. It is also not clear what the mandate of this committee is. Our assessment is uh, that present textbooks have been uh, of that, you know, they, a complete overhaul is required. Now, uh, to set about in this direction, it is important to first identify a purpose. A, a thoroughgoing analysis is required uh, of the shortcomings. It is now high time that we get out of our reactive mode and uh, conduct an analysis not only of the shortcomings but also the present uh, of the present textbooks but also on the philosophy of teaching itself there is need to give a thought or rethought to what we would like to teach the children through history leftists have this very clearly cut out in their agenda we the hindus don't history is of no consequence if it does not provide a perspective on who we are what we represent and stand for our trajectory and our place with respect to the wider world. Now, this primary function of defining ourselves to present history textbooks do not fulfill. They create dissonance instead of evoking an attachment and commitment to protect the heritage. And it is really no wonder that Indian heritage lies in ruins. Uh, for example, I was in Germany for a short trip uh, in the course of which I had taken one of these heritage walks uh, to Heidelberg. And uh, there, I mean, they have preserved, Germany is one of the countries which has preserved its uh, heritage very beautifully. The uh, landmarks and the typical uh, essence and the aesthetic uh, look and uh, ambience of the medieval ages. We were in one of these castles where this guide was taking us around. And uh, even in the castle, they had displayed the medieval lifestyle and all that very beautifully. 
and in between while speaking um, i remember that she had became choked with emotion at one point and then she apologized that i'm sorry that's too much history uh, this kind of an attachment uh, with our past and our bearings indians scarcely demonstrate especially in the sense of a collective unless it is a narrow group association along the long lines of caste and clan etc so the seeds of conflict uh, the fault lines that interfere with indian nationhood as a civilizational entity were created in distortions stemming from the medieval and mostly the modern period these are embedded as psychological complexes and prejudices regarding regional identities caste etc in the minds of indians of various communities we cannot write any authentic useful history unless we grow out of this colonial complex even after independence we are perpetuating it uh, whether it is with our history or the sociological premises on which we operate or the constitutional framework and when we are not doing that we are constantly reacting to these loose ideas about ourselves each according to their own sphere of interest and that we identify with a lot of indians at the time when the struggle from colonial rule was on also carried it because they were schooled in that system and since the system never changed these have continued in the minds and actions of our rulers policy makers and institutions even today these are embedded in our polity and prevent us from redefining ourselves at present uh, social media is used to project these individual and group prejudices and complexes verbal battle sacrimony which actually hinders the evolution of a coherent discourse these can be and must be uh, resolved by scholarly consensus consensus alone which brings me to the next point of the clamor of upheaval uh, needs to subside now it is time to set in place a process of evolving a collective judgment after engaging various positions and opinions of the community of scholars through publications and scholarly debate while unanimity of opinion is not required a well considered position even if inconclusive needs to be settled on a whole lot of issues there is no other way these cannot be left to social media battles and opinions of the hoi polloi at either side of the ideological spectrum and on uh, this point it must be said that purging ideological influences and political motivations is essential uh, for example uh, post independence such an exercise was undertaken uh, to put together an account of india's past from our national perspective as a well known marathon series um, was published by bharti vidya bhavan uh, and and it was edited by uh, one of the main editors for rc majumdar uh, it's called a lot of you would know uh, the history and culture of the indian people at the time uh, at that time the divergence in scholarly opinion was mainly on the imperialist and nationalistic interpretations of history problem is subsequently the marxist ideological influence started creeping into academia and it gained such a stranglehold that it marred genuine scholarly consensus any view contrary to their lens was snuffed out ruthlessly and this is the reason for suspicion among indians today of what passes as scholarly opinion this suspicion of scholarship however is not good it is a descent down the hill as an example i cite the case of uh, maharana pratap and the battle of haldikatti in recent times the outcome has been of this battle has been interpreted as a total defeat for the mewar forces uniformly in all accounts 
it's not really clear when the battle came to be described in terms of such a stark result, uh, since earlier scholarly consensus spoke of it clearly as a evenly drawn combat. It's not difficult to guess, it probably came about as a result of the Marxist Islamist takeover of history. Uh, now there is a lot of popular sentiment attached to this character, his memory is cherished as a hero um, for all of Indians irrespective of regional delineations. And uh, as the uh, Hindu viewpoints started gaining ground in recent decades, there were moves to change the writings related to the outcome of the battle and references in textbooks were revised when the BJP came into power in Rajasthan. However, when the Congress came back to power in Rajasthan very recently, they changed it back. Now, this is just to illustrate that this wrangling on historical events to suit a political rhetoric does not lead to lasting change. Therefore, uh, scholarly consensus is imperative for an authoritative account of history that will genuinely contribute towards the awareness of people instead of adding to the commotion. Now, how do we go about it? Towards this end, uh, there is a need to chart a definite course, which I summarize in three points. First being historicity. There is a need to restore the factual basis through a process of generating scholarly consensus so that unilateral interpretations and manipulations, distortions of a singular lobby do not take precedence over the established consensus. Although there exist uh, sufficient uh, historical works to determine authentic history, for example, this uh, Bharti Vidyapavan series, which I talked about, and there are many other scholars, individual scholarly works on specific topics. Some of these need to be revised in the face of the newly emerging evidence. For example, archeological discoveries, new sites, material remains, evidence from works of metallurgy, research in linguistics, anthropology, uh, geological and molecular science, etc. All these have turned out a mountain of evidence over the last three to four decades that warrants a reassessment, if not an overhaul of the previous conclusions. The next point is historiography. Uh, historiography is a manner regarding historical accounts and events and characters interpreted with freshly evolving perspectives with the times. For example, we had earlier the traditional uh, histories, the clan and uh, official uh, clan histories, religious histories. We also had official chronicle, chronicles of rulers, the treatises. As the British began putting together Indian history, they generated their imperialistic view of Indian history. And in response to it arose nationalistic histories, writing, presenting the perspective of their, of those of the colonized. Now there is a need to get out of defense, this defensive stage as a free confident nation now after 75 years and consciously take stock of our journey, the present position and the future course of our civilization. We are at present still in an inertial phase, a colonial hangover, uh, because where there's no thought to this. We need to redo this entire exercise of comprehensive history writing, add new findings, incorporate new understandings, etc. And finally, uh, the point of history. From these uh, will emerge the standard and formal or official versions, uh, which are so grating to some of the Hindus, which uh, reflect uh, the, these versions should be very uniform uh, across uh, textbooks and government position and in policy. And for example, I come again back to the question of caste. 
At this point, now a critical reassessment of past readings based on a factual position is required to rethink concepts of hegemony and oppression and exploitation, etc., that are inconsistent with the Indian reality. If we remain caught in this mold, we cannot make progress as a civilization. But uh, coming to the moot, what is really wrong with the textbooks? Now, there are, of course, some of the obvious flaws, which many of you keep catching routinely, the innumerable factual errors. It is a case of Norman D. Young's lies, lies, and more lies, and only lies. One wouldn't know really where to begin. I and Rinku, as a matter of fact, we undertook this entire exercise of compiling errors, and it ran into 40 pages, I think. How many were these? Uh, 45 to 50 pages almost. It will be impossible to go into all of these uh, within a single presentation, but Rinku will uh, take up some of these uh, more glaring ones subsequently. Then there are big problems with methodology, which also we'll discuss later. There are flaws in presentation, the foundational concepts of history, the sources, archaeology, dating, etc., are either absent or presented in a very haphazard manner without logical progression of one concept leading to the next. The biggest problem is uh, there is no periodization. Clearly defining the stages of human evolution and culture along with material advancement. A lot of information is provided in cluttered, incoherent manner. So the child never really gets a picture of where to fit in such a huge amount of information covering six to seven millennia of human past. Then the content is mixed up, distorting the picture to such an extent as to make it incomprehensible and misleading. Prehistory is very sketchily presented. A comprehensive picture is missing of Indian society, Indian civilization, vis-a-vis uh, -vis the human history and simultaneous civilizations of the world. Then there are serious chronological flaws, which is a cardinal sin in textbook history. Then there are dubious elements. The narration itself is a loose polemical ramble much of it without any basis in truth or justification in sources. There are outdated theories thrown in, presented as established facts, the famous uh, Iran invasion. Then there is conflation of the concept of Arya uh, and with the Nazi racial idea of the Aryan race. And uh, there is also this definite insidious agenda. The Marxist subtext is present throughout in these uh, textbooks. All through, there is an underlying purpose to twist historical material around the preset narrative, devising within them themes of gender and patriarchy, caste and conflict, deprivation and disempowerment, exploitation and oppression, and to contrive a distinct parallel subaltern culture to portray history as their class struggle against a hegemonic Brahminism and the rulership. This is the primary purpose of Marxist historiography. It does not suit their purpose to view human development and social relationships as a natural process through a complex of social interactions and a gradually evolved order over time. And culture as expressions of human creativity, aspiration, and evolution of human consciousness. Then the materialist present in the present books consists of uh, selected historical events or facts or factoids or half facts, even fibs for that matter, presented in random and vague fashion so that they don't convey history at all. 
what they're doing is they're selecting elements from history to adapt these for inculcating their ideology. It is, in fact, literally a communist induction manual, merely set to a historical theme. It is meant to fulfill the ideologue's agenda. Teaching is history is simply not the intention. And the conceivement picture is so distorted and removed from reality of the past that it takes the child to a disjointed, dismal dystopia of conflict, of exploitation, of iniquity, which does not excite their interest. Rather, it makes them mentally switch off from it. The true purpose of history for the children to learn in order to learn about the past, in order to connect with it, to derive a sense of pride and identity from it, is lost. Our overall conclusion has been uh, that there is so much wrong in these books, in these books that cannot be improved upon. They have to be discarded wholesale. Then there is also a definite pernicious agenda. Completely ahistorical artificial constructs uh, to have been inserted to deliberately create fault lines of gender, caste, subnationalism, uh, counterfactual ruler versus rule dichotomy. Now, these things are simply not true. The ruler to subject relationship as a parent to child paradigm was in fact conceived in India. Then the period before Islamic invasions is portrayed as a dark, tired, disordered world ruled by despots. And the books are also filled with some of the most outrageous lies. The devastation of foreign invasions are turned into benign and beneficial influences. Pre-Islamic rulers are portrayed as wasteful, boastful, warmongering tyrants, even temple breakers. Indianness itself is diluted by blurring the line between Islamic invaders and Indian rulers. This is a very shocking example. Uh, they actually mention uh, Mahmud Ghazni as another one among the Indian rulers, merely wanting to enrich himself by wars, just as other Hindu rulers were doing. The, as regards the society, the actual workings of Varna, Jati, etc., the flexibility and scope of upward mobility and integration, since foreigners were also continually absorbed in the Indian mainstream, is deliberately misrepresented. This history doesn't have the remotest resemblance to the long-standing reality of Indian society, which was an arrangement of deference to knowledge, precedence to those who bore greater onus and obligation in society, and caste not as a hierarchical power structure, but a differentiated functions, occupation and specialization, and the consequent character, an aspirational index, calling and identity. The extent to which Indian civilization has been devalued is beyond belief. Indian literature is presented as uninspiring. The architectural excellence, not as marks of brilliance or technical marvel or the beauty of the times, but as a, a science of the rulers vainglory. And the social system was oppressive and discriminatory. There's absolutely nothing in there that a child would feel good about. It tells children that Indian civilization has nothing of value, therefore there's nothing worthy of de being defended. And that it was fair game for every foreign adventurer, every prospector's Eldorado. And this is a very deliberate agenda throughout the NCRT books. Uh, now, in order to work on some of these problems that plague standard versions of history, we formed last year a group called the 
Council of Historical and Sociological Research, the CHSR, under the aegis of Sarayu Trust. I and Rinku started working on a new set of books uh, with a few more uh, supporting members and with which it is now intended to completely redo the way history has been taught in schools till now. We have worked on a syllabus, a modern periodization consistent with world history, content, design, and uh, the pedagogical aspects. The books are designed as encyclopedic readers, basically meant to provide a comprehensive view of the past to children. The entire history of India, uh, from the prehistoric to the modern times, uh, has been divided into 13 parts, over 10 books in all. Three of these are now also in the finishing stages. We hope to do another talk uh, very soon when the first set of books is out. And if this finds your interest, uh, we hope to see you all around for another deco on the plan and its features. Now, some of the flaws that we came across in our analysis of the present textbooks and how they have been addressed or are intended to be addressed in our books are summarized here in respect of both the methodology and the content. Some of the most stark flaws will become apparent in this comparison, which Dr. Ringu will take you through just now. But before that, a short note on the historiography. Now, central to the Marxist treatment of historical and sociological studies is this theory of historical materialism, which tries to show socialism and communism as scientific necessities rather than a set of philosophical propositions. There is an attempt to constantly create a correlation between material production and social hierarchy. We find, therefore, that the present textbooks contain fragmentary facts, either selected or customized or outright pulp, in order to justify this predetermined framework, rather than a systematic and honest study of the causal relationships between events of the past and how things turned out in the course of human society. Now, without going into the nitty-gritties of that debate, uh, which has been going on for quite some time now, about the merits and demerits of scientific or interpretive methods of historical narration, we see a non-interpretive method as ideal for standard versions, the textbook version. There is no need to weigh textbook history with sociological imperatives. The approach is to present history as a discipline with clearly defined aims, primary among them, to present a perspective of the past as a context in order to derive B, learnings for the present. This involves a systematic study of the complex of circumstances that created the social conditions and prompted the actions of the people in the past through objective, correct, and most importantly, proportionate representation of facts. History has to be viewed in totality. Viewing it uh, with magnified parts will inevitably lead to distortion. So now I give it over to Rinku to run you through some of the things which we came across, which really were quite disturbing also at times. Hi, Krishmita. Namaste, everyone. When we ask teachers about what is the most important thing in a school, they respond with answers like infrastructure, curriculum, the method and practice of teaching or pedagogy and so on. But what the teacher must always remember is that the most important entity in the school is a child. Our focus should never waver from this singular truth. So as we charted the course of writing our books, we focused on the recipient of this knowledge, the student. And therefore, 
while it is simple enough to write a textbook, but to make it appealing enough through language and informative approach was quite a challenge. Any teacher knows that the historical understanding of young people and how they make sense of history sources varies across a broad spectrum. The socio-cultural contexts and identities shape their interpretations of how historians do history. Many children and adolescents think that uh, the narratives that the historians present to them are always truthful or objective. And there is very little room for ambiguity. And overall, it has been noticed that without prompting, the young people rarely ever take the time to consider their conceptions of history. So when asked to explain why historical actors or groups believed or behaved as they did, students described people in the past as less intelligent than people of today. Therefore, by reorganizing traditional teaching practices and methods, even in the tiny, tiny ways, the teachers can provide experiences for students to comprehend and construct historical accounts in more credible and complex ways. I would now take you through the absence of such thinking from the existing textbooks and the solutions that we seek to offer. Allow me to take you to a classroom which is the end goal of this endeavor of research and writing. Let us come to the first slide, which is structure and chronology. There are significant chronological errors and flaws in sequencing in the extant textbooks. Muhammad Ghori, who invaded India sometime in the 10th century CE, is mentioned before Chol kings, who are mentioned in Ashokan inscriptions of 3rd century BCE. The 1857 revolt is mentioned before the British Education Mission, also called the Woods Dispatch, which came in 1783. The Rajputs, the Marathas, the Sikhs, the Jats, the Ahoms are clubbed together in a ragtag bunch, and it conveys more or less uh, an ideological insinuation rather than a narration of history. Our principle and endeavor has been to create a chronological narrative and a very clear portrayal of contemporary and corresponding elements. We believe that contending and complementing factors should be uncompromised in the narration of history. We do not believe in tinting or tainting history. Our text follows a structured pattern based on a clear scheme, which is anchored in four basic things, period and trend, interplay of factors and human actors, overarching significance and salient features. In fact, I would reiterate here that our books adhere to the accurate periodization by identifying and synchronizing concrete stages of human development with gradual technological development. We have brought out clearly how increasingly complex societies and cultures evolved out of these factors. These principles are consistent with internationally accepted parameters of periodization of human history. The next slide tells us about the omissions and commissions that we found in these textbooks. We found that outdated theories with no basis in any valid historiographical evidence are still present in these textbooks. Excessive space has been allotted to Ashok and Buddhism has been portrayed as the only positive outcome 
of Indian civilization, the central stream of Hinduism has been downplayed. Entire dynasties after King Harsh of 647 CE have been erased and we come straight away to the Sultanate period of 1206 CE. The struggles and triumphs of Hindu rulers against brutal Arab onslaughts, which lasted for nearly a period of three and a half centuries, have been totally whitewashed. We, on the other hand, have incorporated latest archaeological finds with patterns of continuity and change, as well as regional variations such as pottery, megalithic cultures, etc. The achievements and advancements of Hindu civilization, the superior philosophical trends and tenets of Hinduism established through the intellectual process of Shastrat have been documented in the CHSR books. We have also brought out the cultural achievements of post-Harsh dynasties. In the next slide, we find that the achievements of Indian civilization are completely obscured. Islam has been introduced as benign, enlightening influence, a lease of fresh life to decaying and strife within India, a mode of cultural exchange and transformation of economy to stagnant India. In fact, Arabs are also portrayed as just mere traders. Well, there is mere tokenism in mentioning Indian developments in science, the thriving schools and institutions through which these were disseminated find no mention at all. Arabs are portrayed, portrayed as bearers of knowledge who transmitted Indian knowledge to Europe and infused new knowledge into India. While this is not strictly untrue, but it doesn't really define the kind of relationship that existed between the Arabs and the Indians. We have brought out our own self-conceptualizations of uh, ideas such as dhar, darshan, adi. We have brought out our cultural achievements of architectural magnificence, monumental construction of temples, structures, irrigation works, dams, cities, technological advancements such as the existence of observatories in ancient India vast works in fields of knowledge such as mathematics, astronomy, medicine, logic, philosophy, the education system, such as the existence of numerous universities. We have also brought out the highly developed skills of ancient Indians in stone masonry, metallurgy, artistic and literary expressions. Brilliant models of governance such as temple economy, institutions and administrative systems have been documented. We have also mentioned the treatises on economy, statecraft, and jurisprudence. These egregiously misplaced portrayals have been corrected. However, taking care to stay clear of any non-academic motivations when it comes to demonizing a religion, our efforts have been to rationally analyze the difference between incursions of prior foreign tribes vis-a-vis -vis the Islamic invasions. To find out the reason why the former were assimilated, while the cataclysmic effects of the latter were felt for a long, long time. But the narration is analytic about how the new religious ideology was executed during invasions and its bearing on Indian civilization. Mention of setback to the fields of science, mathematics, medicine, metallurgy of ancient India that received a dent, 
a huge setback with the advent of Islam has also been brought out. Temples are portrayed as demonstrations of power in the existing books. The warring Hindu rulers in which common people had no stakes. Destruction of temples is rationalized, saying that wealth and gold was stored in temples and therefore the attacks on temples were justified by the Muslims as well as the Hindus. The truth is, though the kings, the Hindu kings, did appropriate images of their rival, uh, their rivals or enemies, deities, there was a proper procedure to reinstall them through a, a detailed process of ritual, as laid down in the Agam Shastra, in their own territories to offer puja to them. The intent of the Islamic invaders and their actions differed considerably from these. Uh, rulings and uh, process laid down in the Agra. Temples were foundations of society, the nuclei of communities, repositories of culture and centers of education. Large-scale religiously motivated iconoclasm by Muslim rulers and armies cannot equal that. Anachronistic focus on gender, in fact, is one thing that we have noticed at many places in the textbooks. Islam has been portrayed as the more progressive religion compared to Hinduism and falsely equating Razia Sultan, who merely ruled for two years in the face of extreme opposition by her own nobles and deliberation in Islamic rulership has been compared with Rudrama Devi, who ruled for very long. In fact, it has been brought out that Rudrama Devi could only rule through a masculine attire or as a male, Rudrade. The truth is, the various Kakatiya uh, temples have numerous images of Rudrama Devi in her feminine form. The mention of female Hindu rulers, regents, and administrators has been clearly brought out. The philosophical texts and warriors have been clearly mentioned in our texts. Nature of Islamic polity, the impoverishment and oppression of Indians and their religious persecution has been clearly whitewashed in the present books. While we have brought out the truth of Islamic taxation such as jizya and courage, the persecution, mass conversions, destruction of temples and architectural excellence in our own books. Even from the Islamic chronicler's accounts, there is clear evidence of what happened then. I'll uh, quote from Tariq Ekiro's Shahi of Ziauddin Barani in Eliot and Dawson, History of India, as told by its own historians in eight volumes. This is a description of the life of Hindus under Khiljis. I quote, the people were brought to such a state of obedience that one revenue officer would string 20 creeks Mukaddims or Chaudhrins together by the neck and enforce payment by blows. No Hindu could hold up his head, and in their houses, no sign of gold or silver, tokas or jitas, or of any superfluity was to be seen. In the next slide, we see that the thriving Hindu power centers and sanctuaries in early and later medieval India contemporaneous with Islamic rule have been completely omitted in the books. We have tried to bring out the limited nature of Islamic control of India. 
and we have also brought out the continuous struggles and triumphs of Hindu rulers against Islamic attacks. The books also tell us that Mughals were the first people to establish an empire. Not true. Mughals' centrality to medieval Indian history has been balanced out with mention of regional rulers. The Mughal Empire's boundaries were amorphous. Most outlying areas were never permanently under their control. And in fact, there was a constant struggle with regional powers for control of these areas. The two-nation theory that led to partition has been completely erased from the textbooks, while we have brought out its roots in the Mughal riots and various other anchors. In fact, as we progress uh, through the analysis and review of these books, we find that to the extent that Marxist methodology lays special stress on the role of material forces in the shaping of history, they were able to make a significant contribution to highlighting the exploitative nature of the state under Sultanate and Mughal rulers. While it has been downplayed, but it has been also brought out that they appropriated the bulk of the agrarian produce, leaving the peasants in abject poverty. But Marxist methodology in India is not acknowledged for its expertise in studying economic determinism alone. It is also associated with an active hostility to India's civilizational values and its achievements. Our books support the development of responsible history, citizenship, and heritage education. We have endeavored to achieve this task by promoting critical thinking, mutual respect, and the inclusion of contentious issues. A decolonized history curriculum beginning from younger ages can improve discourse at higher levels. Often challenging or sensitive topics relating to colonial history are left out for fear of, of tarnishing young minds. However, without a baseline knowledge, such important topics cannot even be discussed or integrated at secondary or post-secondary levels. How the British used uh, the education in India as a colonizing project has also been discussed. There was an excellent uh, arrangement of parchalas across India, in fact. William Adams reports between 1835 and 38 tell us that there were nearly 20 lakh parchalas across India. And this information is also corroborated by the various surveys commissioned by the British. In the pre-colonial period, primary education had already decayed under the Islamic rule. But even then, these reports tell us that these, they were dedicated teachers. There was high attendance and high retention were the norm. Thomas Monroe, in his report on indigenous education in Madras of 1821, tells us that every village had Pakshana. Shudra enrollment was in majority in Tamil Nadu and Kerala. In Tamil-speaking areas, about 70 to 84% of students were Shudra. These are eye-opening numbers because you assume that Shudras would have been denied education altogether. On the other hand, in the contemporary period, there were no elementary schools in Britain. People used to live in abject illiteracy. And Bible was perhaps the only book that was commonly and openly available for people to read. There was no school system at the grassroots levels. Reverend Andrew Bell noted that the Madras presidency had a high rate of literacy. Children were tracing alphabets in the sand. This is what we teach even now at pre-primary and primary levels, learning by doing. Teachers 
were not required to supervise, but the students learned themselves under the guidance of their seniors, the Montessori method. This was also called the Madras method, introduced later in other countries. This was a lesson that the British learned from English. Another missionary records the unusual method of examination uh, prevalent in Bengal. He notes that the clever children used to quiz other children from schools, or there would be an inter-school competition with teachers marking the students' level of knowledge, a totally stress-free, hassle-free way to conduct an examination. The colonial policies therefore destroyed agriculture, trade, and industry by draining Indian resources and creating shortage of food. The exploitative land revenue system that the colonialists imposed upon us was meant to strip Indians of all wealth and it brought on widespread rural distress and reduced village after village to destitution. Now we come to the instances of misrepresentation in the textbooks. If you look at the left side of this slide, it begins with 400 taxes. It appears as if the Chol kings were highly exploitative and malevolent rulers. But the truth is the taxation system under the Chols was highly sophisticated and categorized into seven types based on the income. Landowners were taxed differently from cultivators. In fact, there were only seven types of taxes levied on people through the various periods of Chol rule. Also, there were no forced or free labor. Rice or meals were always provided to laborers in exchange for their work. Even the modern system of administration is uh, projected as exploitative and coercive, while the truth is quite the opposite. It was a very well-organized administration, military, even espionage. Uh, an interesting sideline on the modern empire, which I just recollected is that there were women guards in Chandragupta Maurya's palace. And there were women administrators in the modern system. Isn't it wonderful? When we have been told that women were always considered lower than men, and we hear the various long tales of patriarchy and misogyny throughout the tracts of history books, which are commonly available in the market these days. Well, Coming to the next slide, there is of course the problem of disproportionate representation of various dynasties in these textbooks. The Rajputs, the Marathas, the Sikhs, the Jats, and the Ahoms have been clubbed together. And the Ahoms have even been projected as forest dwellers as if they were some um, raw tribe. Their entire history is scattered over several pages in tiny, tiny paragraphs without any concern for periodization. In contrast, the Delhi Sultanate and Mughal rulers occupy seven chapters in history textbooks. What we have done is a not proportionate pension to powerful Indian dynasties, such as the Parmas, the Pratihas, the Chalukyas, the Sisodias, the Chahamanas, the Gahadwas, the Palas, Rashtrakutas, Senas, Pandyas, Chandeyans, Kalchuris, Sionyadavas, Gangas, Kakatiyas, Karkutas, etc. We have highlighted representative rulers of some of the clans who were beloved and revered till date. And they are remembered in the Bardic Chronicles even now. Rana Kumbha, 
राणा सांगा महाराणा प्रताप परम भट्टारक महाराज भोज परमार एंड सक्सेसफुल रेजिस्टेंस टू महामदंस इज स्टिल संग इन द वीर गाथास ऑफ टुडे their tenacious effort and valor at preserving religion and independence has been brought out remarkable rulers who enjoyed the deep respect of even the islamic rulers such as sawai raja jaisingh the second of kachwaha dynasty has also been brought out he was a kachwaha ruler i'm sorry proportionate mention has been allotted to building excellence astronomical ad is uh, building of astronomical observatories forts etc what we have brought out is detailed study of maratha strategy their national vision and revival of hindu polity culture restoration of hindu edifices revenue governance and military system we have highlighted the outstanding sacrifices of revered personalities such as Shambhaji, Chhatrapati Rajaram, Tarabai, Shahu Maharaj, known as Hindu Pati, all over India. Rani Ahilya Bai's contributions, innumerable ones. Mahaji Shinde, Rani Lakshmi Bai. How can we forget them? Apart from the fact that they judge an ancient classic literature against anachronistic socialist concepts, it is the most reductionist portrayal of Kalidas's. magnum opus which you now see on your screen the abhigyan chakuntalam has been turned into a story of oppression focusing on ill treatment of fishermen by the king's men it is it even says that the gateman and the police took a share of the reward from the fishermen and went to have a drink i request you all if you can find this line in chakuntalam please provide me with the reference we have put ancient in the literature in its correct perspective as a mirror of ancient society however without resorting to discursive theorizations and also reinforce and rehabilitate the image of the indian society socialist themes have been completely removed indian social system has been portrayed as a stable resilient beneficent system which helped people realize their aspirations and maximize their talents jati has as social capitalism as social capital jati as social capital has also been discussed now coming to the next slide we see an instance where uh, there is a conversation and there is an attempt to create sanskrit versus prakrit fault line Sanskrit has been portrayed as redundant and the exclusive pursuit of scholars and courts, while Prakrit has been shown as a tongue of the disadvantaged classes, including women. This is just one more out of the numerous attempts to weave subaltern themes through the subtext. What is noticeable is that in the same dramas, the scholars have replied to the common people in Sanskrit, and the common people have understood. Thus, they all clearly knew Sanskrit well. As you look at this slide, on the left you find Paya's account mentioning Chandals who were kept out of the village. What these books forgot to mention is Paya's own oh, at the wealth and prosperity of Magal, and where its inhabitants vied with one another in the practice of benevolence and righteousness. They organized a grand procession of richly adorned images of the Buddha. and bodhisattvas every year 
on the eighth day of the second month. Pahyan also goes on to tell us about the heads of the Vaishya families who established dispensing, uh, dispensaries and charity houses. There were hospices on the roadside. In the example given below, uh, we are told that the passing of the king's family created havoc. It was a terrifying event. Whereas there is no such implication in the account of the original writer, Ban. This is a deliberate misrepresentation to demonize Hindu rulers and by its association, the Brahmins also. This is such a subtle yet consistent background building for whitewashing of foreign invasions that one finds throughout the textbooks. That since conditions were so dismal, therefore the foreign invasions probably did do us some good. One is left with no basis of cultural pride and consequently nothing to defend. What we have endeavored to do on the other hand is bring out the true picture of a harmonized social relationship that existed in the society across various groups and reverence and love for rulership and traditional authority figures. This system remained unchanged and withstood foreign onslaught of nearly one millennium before the European Christian missionaries would be famed as exploitative. There's food for thought for all of us here. The next one uh, tells us that the Qurans and epics are not valid sources of history and they are just stories of gods and goddesses and women and shudras have been disempowered with no right to education. Many of such concrete sources of history, such as the edicts, inscriptions, contemporary literary evidence, are discredited without valid reason. These are discounted, citing vague objections that they were not inclusive of women and children. The basis for rejecting their historicity is ideological pre-convictions rather than concern with standards of historiography. Manuscripts are dismissed as prone to error and accessible only to the wealthy. We have treated the Purans and epics as material sources for their evidential value as per standard norms of historiography. In addition, bardic accounts, traditional chronicles have been taken into consideration as corroborative sources. Patently wrong portrayals have been corrected and the detailed genealogies of kings in the Puranas show that people existed even though they are embellished with fanciful tales to glorify the kings. But on the other hand, we also get to know about the sacred geography through the existence of pilgrimages. For example, the Skan Puran tells us about the Kashi Khan, the Ayodhya Khan. We also get to know that Purans contained systems of land grants. So these are valuable information contained in these books. There is documentary high, uh, there is documentary evidence of high enrollment of shudras in schools run by Brahmins. Uh, in a very famous debate now, which is recorded in the Quran uh, between Adi Shankar and Mandan Mishra, when the latter started to, move, uh, to lose, his wife intervened and challenged Adi Shankar. And Adi Shankar had to enter into the body of a king to be able to experience and answer Ubhaya Bharti's questions. We are told that the Bhakti movement was a syncretic movement. 
Whereas the truth is, with the Bhakti movement, the Indian society, its literature and culture entered a new phase of growth and evolution. It was a pervasive cultural movement which appeared in various forms of cultural expression, including philosophy, language, art, and literature. In fact, this is a pan-Indian uprising of a people's culture against the rulership. Mind you, we're talking about the period of 11th and 12th centuries. As a result of the Bhakti movement, the process of building up of various regional languages quickened, and the foundation was laid for the growth of modern Indian languages. Other than Sanskrit, Pali, Prakrit, and Apabhrancha, literatures in regional languages flourished. And uh, the Bhakti movement also recognized the absurdities of social practices. So therefore, it is an indigenous reform movement. It is an indigenous outpouring of the people of this land. It is not a syncretic movement. In the next slide, um, we see an excerpt from the textbook which tells us that Ramabai ruled over the backwardness of the Hindu society. Now, I would like to tell you otherwise. Uh, this comes with a short story. In the famine of 1876-78, Ramabai, aged 16, lost both her parents and a sister to starvation. Penniless, she traveled with her brother over India and publicly reciting Hindu scriptures. Gifted with an astonishing memory, she was conferred upon with the title of Pandita by the Pandits in Bengal. And she herself says that the Hindu Shastras are the solid foundation of her learning. However, something else happens by 1883. She starts converting people because she had received massive, massive funding from the churches. Though Balgangadhar Tilak rude her uh, acts of evangelical and missionary zeal, he was powerless in the, in the face of uh, the, the copious amounts of funds that she received as an active evangelical practitioner. Numerous societies called the Ramabai Circles were formed in the US. They even demonized Swami Vivekanandji, and he was pained by the rejection and persecution he received at the members of these Ramabai circles. And he said they were the most Christian of Christians. I would like you to look at the next slide where the textbooks tell us that not ex the experience of uh, all the groups were not the same under colonization. It is unbelievable that this material was allowed to stay in school textbooks for so long. It is an attempt to build subnational identities whose interests are at odds with the larger group or the dominant caste in their terminology. It is also factually incorrect since clearly all classes of Indians suffered equally from the impoverishment unleashed by the British rule. This is also evocative of the Adhikari thesis, which came out in 1942, in which the CPI ideologue exhorted that India was never one country, ever. It was a collection of ragtag subnationalities, 18 to be precise, grouped under the name of India. Now, this was a red carpet and a justification 
for carving out Pakistan in support of the Muslim League then. What other partitions are we looking at now? Namaste. Thank you. Excellent presentation. I draw your attention to our medal tally in Tokyo Olympics. We are far behind the smallest countries of the world. My questions and suggestions are as follows. The study of Indian civilization and by correct interpretation of last 1,500 years of foreign rule, our young children can improve country's performance when they come of age. Can they do? Second, in seven years of BJP rule, no substantial steps have been taken to rectifying mistakes in writing of history and bring national shame to force, as told in these talks and by neither the PG and, and uh, earlier. How to fast track uh, this uh, uh, correct interpolation? And my suggestion to you, both of you, is that if you can prepare a small clip for organizers of Sangam talks to be circulated via SMS, giving correct interpolation that will help, uh, help uh, young people and elders also to keep track of the things. Thank you very much. Namaste, Dr. Inkuji and Sutaji. Thank you very much for an excellent uh, presentation and for all the wonderful uh, work you're doing. Um, I just have an observation and a question. So I put the question first, please. My question first is with all the amazing research and the work uh, you are doing to get in all the unknown facts and to present the, the right uh, and informed perspective on our history. Uh, would there also be mentions of uh, some very excellent uh, work and, um, and a very good um, sort of uh, pushback to uh, Muslim invasions from the Northeast, primarily from Assam? And I, why I mentioned this is I got to know this only a few years ago actually, that there was a very important Ahun king who actually pushed them back and, and very well. And like you all have mentioned, these are things that, uh, that we are uh, uh, never taught. So uh, that was the first question. Second was actually also a suggestion, if I may, very humbly, and that has actually been um, triggered because of Mamta Banerjee's uh, August 16th call for Kela and, and whatever <laughs> else. Um, it was quite shocking that she chose August 16th and nobody in the media actually even questioned that day when actually it is a call to direct action day. A very important day just connects to what you said we are not taught about our partition our history. So my suggestion is if we can just have an easy ready reckoner of very important dates which no child or anyone passing out from 10th or 12th standard should forget you know and one of which should definitely be August 16th. So that People and leaders do not sort of have that, you know, the shameless, the alacrity with which she was able to say that I'm going to announce uh, Kela and whatnot on uh, August uh, 16th, a date which uh, rings with, with, the, with the blood of uh, Hindus, you know, in, in the call to the state. So that was a suggestion. If you could have, if you could have dates when you are going to make a president. And the, the question was about, uh, is there going to be mention of our Northeast states and how they have also sort of pushed back against us. Thank you. First and foremost, that suggestion is very good to have a ready reckoner at the end of the books. In fact, uh, a very timely suggestion because uh, we are just about to start with the um, rolling it out. Uh, so it's a very good suggestion, as a matter of fact, so the children don't forget. Uh, very important dates. Not only that, there's a uh, Mopla massacre and all that. A whole lot of things which uh, children need to be sensitized. You know, uh, the way Jews uh, mark the day 
um, of their massacres, we have been completely desensitized to it. Um, and uh, as to your question, uh, as Rinku mentioned, it's not possible to mention everything within a single presentation, but she mentioned Ahoms a couple of times. So we that is definitely in the um, plan to have a uh, chapter on uh, comprehensively, which covers only the resistance of uh, Hindus. Three and a half centuries of Rajput resistance has been resistance against uh, Muslims. They, I mean, there are accounts uh, of Arabs writing that how the Kafir has beaten back, oh Allah, why don't you help us and stuff like that. But there is no mention of this. Uh, absolutely. So that is what we talked about. The three and a half centuries after Harsha, they have been completely obliterated from history. And Ahoms, as we mentioned also, they will also be covered at all over India. The South uh, rulers, how they resisted. There was resistance even for Bengal. Uh, for um, So that, of course, will be covered. That is one of the intentions. I think Smitha has covered uh, that in her answer. And I also, in my presentation, we shared that it is not possible to cover each and every aspect of our work in the presentation. But I hope the we got her response. Uh, Madam, uh, my question is regarding uh, UPSC. So I see that the same uh, same syllabus has been followed in the UPSC. So are you both doing something against it? Because I've given my exam, I came across everything which was, which was uh, you know, all the false things are there in UPSC, they are thought. So I would like to know from both of you. Thank you. Well, yes, that exactly is the problem that it has been going on. Now, seven years have passed and we still don't see any change and the same syllabus. And if I may cite, there was a case when my son was in school a few years back uh they were teaching Aryan invasion and at that time a few boys just stood up waving their hands uh, a few boys and girls and they started saying ki ma'am ye tum hua hi nahi tha invasion so ma'am said nahi nahi tum logo kya pata ye wo and all that karke unhone chup karke unko bitha diya but the fact is that this consciousness and awareness is coming so well yes you're right ups still carries on with the same syllabus now this recent proposal that we are talking about there are two proposals one that the ugc syllabus itself will be changed and the proposals are very good actually within that if they are able to execute it and uh, also they have invited proposals uh, for changing the entire syllabus and that is what i covered in the first part of my presentation that what it will be the extent uh, will be they be just small insertions ki be thoda female characters ka dal diya thoda hinduism ka dal diya or will it be a total overhaul that kind of thing is unfortunately not clear as yet uh, in our books we have done a complete overhaul not only on the syllabus and the content but also the way history is taught um, it i mean it used to be known as scientific uh, historicism earlier but i mean that is of course an outdated concept now but the idea is that you present history uh, in a very clear stage of how human uh, culture and consciousness developed over time so without um, so that is our idea that we have even changed the way history is taught of course ours is more of an encyclopedic version than a textbook versions but textbook versions are very much possible from um, uh, those uh, versions now, like I said, it remains to be seen what the government does. We are waiting and watching 75 years. If Indians don't have the character to even change these detrimental uh, descriptions of themselves, when, uh, I mean, what to do? It is a very frustrating thing. I agree with you. I would like to add to your experience, Smita. My daughter, who's just passed out of her BA geography honors, was also taught the Erin and Rachel theory in her classroom. 
and the teacher simply refused to accept that this theory has been thoroughly debunked or even being challenged. So this is the level of awareness of university teachers. I live in Delhi. Your organization having taken such a you know mammoth initiative to you know correct the historical narratives and the historical facts. So uh, I really appreciate you for that. Thank you so much for taking up this. And uh, I have quite a few questions. So uh, let me start with um, uh, you know the concept of false equivalences which we have currently, which is being you know anything and everything is being equated to you know uh, West the concepts and parallels we have today, uh, concepts which have in India, the systems which we have in India is blindly equated to that in West. So why, my first uh, question or my first suggestion to you would be, uh, what have you done in your uh, in your encyclopedic work, which ensures that you know there is a distinction which is drawn between what is Indic and what is non-Indic when such false equivalences are done. So to put it in perspective, one example I can give is, uh, you know, the concept of slavery. So the concept of slavery as it is understood today, my understanding is that was not what was present in India earlier. But then there were instances of bonded labor and so and so on. So that was definitely there. And similarly, caste was present, untouchability was also present in pockets, but then there was no serfdom or slavery. So my in my point, first suggestion or question to you is, have you made an effort to draw a clear distinction between these, you know, completely different terms, untouchability being one and serfdom and slavery being other. Untouchability was present in pockets of India earlier, though uh, we don't have any, uh, what do you say, sanction of the book or something like that supporting untouchability or something. But then it was indeed present in certain pockets, even though I think uh, I remember attending a Sangam Talks lecture earlier on uh, Dharampal Ji's book, wherein it was, he had told that, uh, wherein the speaker had told that, you know, there were even Chandala teachers in uh, as early as uh, in the 19th century or so. So yeah, but then the point being, have you made an effort to draw a distinction between, uh, you know, these terms? Caste untouchability is not the same as serfdom and slavery. So that would be my first suggestion. So, and I, if I am provided more time, I have quite a few questions as well. So can you please start with this one? So to begin, first of all, um, there is no sort of a parallel drawn between the West and the East. This is one of the very important things to remember. Cultural, uh, I mean, human culture has to be developed not in isolation. However, the unique features present within a culture. Uh, the second thing which you come to that uh, slavery and serfdom and caste. Uh, First of all, as I already explained a little earlier in my uh, explanation um, in my presentation, that there is nothing as caste. This certain thing has not uh, come into India before the um, 18th to 19th century, late 18th to 19th century. Uh, what we had, of course, was occupational groups, and these occupational groups were everywhere. They were everywhere. You have Germans with names of uh, beer brewer and uh, shoemaker, a shoemaker and a beer uh, brewer, and you say that they was cast in India. Uh, so if those were now they have become names. If those were names, then uh, how do you say so? These were occupational groups. And uh, the second thing being slavery and caste are two entirely different things. Uh, uh, the fact that human beings are all equal. Uh, equal in terms of uh, human dignity. That is very well understood in India. That is the reason we have uh, references um, in uh, this thing. Uh, 
there is the Kanapanaya story, which says that okay, even a Brahmin's worship is not acceptable, but a, a forest dweller's uh, worship is acceptable. There is uh, Shankara's Sri Shankara's story where he accepts a chandal as his uh, guru because he demonstrates that knowledge. He later on realizes that is Shiva himself. Uh, whether that is allegoric or whether that is actual, that's a different thing. So, I mean, uh, when they talk about uh, untouchability, uh, uh, my question to you, can you name a single society which does not have untouchability? They had these uh, night soil pickers even in Europe and up till the 20th century, this was removed not before nine, the early 1900s. They have it in yep. Japan, they have it in China, they have it in Mongolia, they have it everywhere where there has been a sufficient differentiation in society because you have to also recognize that India was a highly developed civilization over several years. So obviously social differentiation happened. And to see social uh, social differentiation itself as a negative thing is a very wrong concept because as a matter of fact, it's an indicator of human development. As developed as a society is, there is no differentiation. What has been done is that these things worked very harmoniously uh, earlier. I mean, they were always harmonious. They're, these theorizations uh, about drawing fault lines based on how people interacted with each other, this has been a later phenomena. So this has not been given a separate treatment because, like I said, these are all subjects of, you know, high level sociological, these things where you are discussing, you cannot discuss it at the textbook level. And that's the reason I also talked about non-interpretive history, uh, because we are looking at standard uh, narrations. We are not looking at uh, highly interpretive narrations. So these will not be taken up like that. As in you, this, as an example, there's no need to talk about Aryan invasion when there was no Aryan invasion. You talk about this, uh, purely talk about a cultural continuity, which is very much there ev from evidence. So we'll tell children about con cultural continuity. We will not tell them about the debate within Aryan invasion and uh, whether Aryan invasion was there or not. Similarly is the case with caste. We talk about occupational groups. We talk about how they participated. We talk about dynasties with all. They have been dynasties of hill dwellers. We have the Rajgons. We have dynasties of Chamars. We have dynasties of the lowest castes who fought where they had a strident fight uh, they carried on against the Islam. We talk about that. So why talk about something which was not there? Yeah, absolutely, ma'am. I do completely agree with your point. Untouchability as a, I mean, as a social stratification or as a group has always been present in all cultures all around the world. So, I mean, maybe I didn't address it right. My whole point was, uh, was there an attempt in your book to show that this is something which is not as uh, uh, endemic to India or it's not something as, uh, you know, pernicious as it is portrayed to be? This is just an organic growth of... Um, I mean, it's just a part of an organic growth of any society for that matter, which is, I would say, not, which is something non-Abrahamic. So, yeah, that was my point. Yeah, you have clarified it. Thank you for that. And uh, I think since uh, you have said that your work is more from a textbook perspective and not from an interpretative version of history. So I think I did have a couple of questions related to the, I mean, an interpretative version. But then since you're dealing more with facts and immediate uh, representation of it, so I'll skip those. Um, I can take up those yeah. later on, but in the course of, yeah. uh, I mean, it, in the context of the present, uh, this thing, it does not come in question because caste itself, I mean, why would you mention it something? Why would you mention about untouchability out of, do you see untouchability mentioned in, uh, do you see now Night's Wild Pickers mentioned in English history? Yeah. So I this mean, defensiveness is something which we have to get over. True. I agree. That's true. 
so uh, i think i would ha- have one more suggestion um yeah so uh, i mean um, my understanding is again that you know the main purpose of history is to learn from one's mistakes as much as you know uh, knowing about our glorious traditions so i would uh, suggest one thing if i mean if you have not come across this particular uh, book earlier so it is actually uh, determinants of hindu defeats by sitaram goel i'm i'm sorry the yeah and sorry the name of the book is story of islamic imperialism in india and the chapter 9 which i'm referring to is titled as determinants of hindu defeat so i know again that this goes into a re- i mean interpretative version of history uh, you know which you are not you know uh, delving much into your book but then if uh, i would suggest that you can go through this if you haven't already and um, uh-huh. and subsequently Oh, wonderful. Okay then. <laughs> so that was one thing. One of our earlier talks, which was done by Kaushiki Shukla. Um, I mean, my whole point is that along with not being defensive and saying it was prevalent all around, uh, should we also give a kind of explanation behind how it originated? Like she talked about, uh, there was skin skinning, uh, you know, t- uh, people who belong to a certain uh, community who used to the skin, uh, you know, hides and tanning and all that. So. Um, they were mingling with the same water uh, resources and the same uh, land resources and it was leading to a lot of diseases so they decided to keep them aside and they were okay with it because they understood that we cannot infect everybody and uh, also she spoke about how this later on might have got into a class struggle or whatever which was used by uh, you know the people later but the origin of what she talks about uh, is pretty interesting that how this whole thing started off and about the caste system i think even today in today's offices we have the division of labor and we all i mean r vedanathan professor r vedanathan talks about uh, caste as a social capital so it's even prevalent now and even prevalent in all the offices going on and even all over the country all over the world in fact so i was just thinking together with say not being defensive which is a very interesting point can we also give a small background behind how it originated something like that okay to answer your question uh, you are aware of the bureaucratic structure isn't it you know about class 1 officer a class 2 officer and a class 3 officer and a class 4 officer what is a class 4 officer who brought the system the british brought it it is just an occupational description because people who are fulfilling certain functions they have uh, it is understood that they have a consequent uh, level of consciousness also let me give you a practical example i was working with the germans i have a long background i have almost 15 to 20 years of work i have done with the germans uh at that time the german embassy that i was working it was being renovated and uh, the partial premises were being renovated and we were operating from a different wing now in i was just going around inside the premises uh, when one of the contractors he was a german uh, who was directing the work over there he i mean uh, shouted at me or something and spoke to me very rudely and uh, i was very upset and i came back to my room and at that time my boss who was also a german and he told me that please don't mind he belongs to that class of people who are baumen they call them in german who are work to the contract uh, the worker class and the uh, contractor class and he does not know the way to behave with this thing uh, there's another example uh, i was in max miller bhavan library where they have separate sections of magazines and there was a couple of um, one section where there were very 
prose and vulgar content in a couple of magazines. So once uh, one of the students in our class, he asked our professor, again a German, and he said, why are these books like that? He said, because they appeal to that class of people because these are meant for those construction workers and all that. One recognizes caliber in human beings. Let us understand one thing. It is very unrealistic to expect human beings to be. I mean, what do you base equality on? I mean, can you run as fast as Ashwini uh, Nachapa? Uh, you cannot. Basically, people have different occupations. They have different callings. They have different. So this is what it was. Now, to give it a rigid structure was entirely a thing which came up with British India. Now, when we are talking about uh, history, uh, first of all, uh, this by itself need not be mentioned in history. It might be mentioned in civics when you are studying civics that how I mean, the workers are all. But they are also, like I said, there is no need to be defensive. There is no need to mention something which is a normal everyday affair. We need to now get over this thing about you know playing caste against each other. Of course, at a higher level, when you are actually doing a comprehensive compilation of history and sociology of India, you need to mention these things. They have to be debated how this was used. The first example which I gave, that why they did start this uh, rhetoric against Brahminism. But these things do not need to be mentioned like that inside the uh, books. Of course, we need to mention that they were a people who were traditionally this, however, they came to power, for instance. This is how you can mention. There was the Gonds, they were tribal people, etc. However, since they were very brave, the Brahmins gave them the this thing of being the Reddy dynasty in uh, this thing. Why? They were Shudras, but they came to power. when And they proclaim in their edicts also that when the rulership could not fight against this thing, we, the proud Shudras, we took on the Mlechas. So... Uh, I mean, uh, it is that way you can say that they belong to a class who were from this thing, but they came up, they rose in power, for instance. But there is no need to constantly go on harping on because we have to stop harping on this thing. It doesn't matter. Does it matter to you? Do you even ask in India? So why say it in your history? This is precisely the purpose of Marxist history and it was the purpose in imperialist history, but we needn't mention it. Smita ji, Rituji, thank you very much. Very nice session. This uh, 15th July was the deadline for sending the suggestion to Rajasama Standing Committee. I did that and I asked many of my contacts, you know, many of my acquaintance to do the needful. They did the same. So my question is like, uh, do you do you foresee the changes coming in through uh, in a valid manner? Or do you think the bureaucratic, you know, corruption which is there, the babus and all, will they let us? Will they let those changes happen in the history? Are you privy to some of the functionings of government? Can you enlighten us on that aspect, please? To be honest, I'm just like all of you. So I wouldn't claim that I'm privy to what is happening within the government. The second thing, I think the implication on bureaucrats is not really fair. To call bureaucrats as a class which is uh, corrupt is not a very fair characterization. They are, of course, schooled into a certain, uh, they are trained into a certain line of thinking. Uh, and they have little to do uh, that kind of a decision power to change things they wouldn't have. Uh, now comes to the government in power. The government in power, as also I addressed that they, while they do have the power, they have had this absolute power for the past seven years now, how much uh, they have the conviction to go through with it. Because under the skin, you scratch even a right winger or a left winger in India, they're all socialists. So how much they have that power of conviction, how much of vision, that's the most important thing they have 
uh, that what degree a change in uh, is required uh, to you know infuse a change in the entire psyche of indians i doubt that exists at present i am being very honest with you uh, now comes to the specific question of course books uh, from the way i have gone through the ugc this thing the syllabus which has been recommended for ugc from there it does appear that they are doing a comprehensive change uh since the rajya sabha thing was only inviting suggestions and uh, analyzing it um, the inputs i don't know to what extent they need to go um, they extend, uh, they intend to go um, but our personal this thing is because of the reasons uh, highlighted in the presentation that it is needs a complete overhaul you cannot carry on with this books even with insertions of some nice hindu things uh, you cannot carry on with uh, these books they are a total i mean uh, they are negativity infusing negativity generation after generation year after year into hindu society you cannot allow this to continue uh, thank you so much uh, smita ji and riku ji i'm grateful for the work being a student uh, myself i understand the you know pain you go through when you read this history textbook so i just wanted uh, your suggestion on one topic like uh, uh, you you are doing a great work to amend the uh, history textbook but what can we do about the mindset of teachers like uh, putting this in context uh, you know uh, most of the teachers have this tendency to associate all the worst things that happened in the world with ourselves uh, for example uh, when you talk about religious terrorism they uh, uh, associate isis with bajrang dal which is complete like bullshit and then uh, when you talk about racism they come and tend to associate it with uh, indian society casteism so uh, you know what can we do about this let me say in fact someone else also mentioned teachers first thing that a lot of teachers unfortunately are constrained to stick to the syllabus and the syllabus presently says it very plainly this is what the syllabus is telling you this is what your textbook uh, versions are telling you so what does a teacher do she has to get uh, teach the children what is there because they have to pass an exam the second thing being that your particular teacher which you are talking about this association of bajrang dal and isis uh, caste and uh, racism i mean racism is something which is vicious if you have experienced it and it is so ingrained that they cannot even see other races at par with themselves uh this unfortunately is one a mindset secondly an ideological preconviction a lot of these teachers not all but a lot of these teachers are already trained into the leftist mindset and that is the reason there is a lot of protest also when this ugc syllabus was uh, introduced the, the biggest protest came from most of the teachers uh, some of the teachers voiced very practical uh, considerations and they had some normal questions but a whole lot of them they said oh this is what we have to teach that is horrible because these people have also been schooled through the same system so it has gone on for so long and so many people in the academia not all again but then so many in the academia are already uh, carrying this this thing so it will take a little bit of time the moment they teach uh, they change the textbooks and this is the reason it is required to do it now do it with conviction and do it comprehensively not a little bit of defensive thoda ye change kar diya thoda wo change kar diya thode women characters dal diye thode hindu characters dal diye thoda sanskrit ke bare mein bata diya not like that it needs to be a comprehensive change a comprehensive rethinking on the part of the leadership i put the onus solely on the leadership only then with maybe this teacher will not be uh, change her mindset although she will be forced to teach uh, the new book 
but the successive generations one can hope will not be uh, carry this mindset uh, madam just one uh, quick last question so math math and uh, analytics have become the only criteria of measuring people's intelligence i would like to know are in there other subjects what about people who are completely from the arts background thank you hmm well this uh, uh, maths well you are right is not the only criteria there is a thing that we discuss in management many times what is an eq what is an iq and there's a new thing which is coming up is the um, general intelligence question so of course you are very right that maths is not the yardstick but then in many of the uh, professions uh, maths is considered the <laughs> yardstick of intelligence having said that Uh, many times these people who are in these fields called sociology uh, social science what they call and all that they use this excuse for uh, their claim is that uh, science uh, stream people don't have that kind of a developed intelligence to um, i mean they are good at their respective talents but they are not good at these uh, you know thinking uh, about the you about develop other aspects of uh, human knowledges and uh, this thing now both these contentions are wrong i mean to think that people who don't have uh, talent with maths or um, at solving uh, physics problems are not intelligent or even the other that the science people are very focused and they cannot think in very um, uh, about psychology and things like that in depth into uh, all these things that is also wrong so uh, i don't know i mean uh, at some point in the education system you have to branch out and if there is necessity uh, there's a necessity to make all of these uh, very practice oriented to see the actual level of intelligence whether it is in the practice of science or whether it is in the practice of the humanities they call it critical thinking uh, most of these humanities people they say that science people are not capable of critical thinking you know that's a very loose accusation similarly science people think to oh, arts people to they good for nothing kuch nahi milta to arts mein ghus jate hain both of them are wrong <laughs> so um, that is what i think <laughs> ma'am i am a history major student a student and i've completed my masters from mumbai university in 2019 I have one question the subaltern narrative which blames brahmanism and hinduism to be problem for every uh, issue in our country and the leftist professors still uh, continue the aryan dravidian theory uh, the organization like uh, bamcef which propaganda is based on brahmin bashing so uh, could you share your views on that uh my answer to that would be that why wouldn't they in a human unfortunately the human experience is such that i mean everyone will speak only the way they see the world now even uh, the consciousness of a leftist has been formed through a certain process the sub, uh, the influences that that uh, person has been subjected through from childhood on to uh, being groomed into adulthood this that is the case with everyone people who have been groomed uh, with sanskars they will tend to uh, see the richness of the tradition and all that why wouldn't they what is missing is this confidence in hindus to a majority of the hindus that we are defensive and we don't kind of proclaim that openly same thing with why are we not doing it we have the power now 
so uh, my answer to that will be that we have to tell our version so that thing will never stop never stop until india is in a very dominating position and it does not look like coming about very soon but in the meanwhile uh, they will say uh, they will keep telling their version and they will keep on doing it for instance in the us history this change from the leftist determinism is the term uh, which they use for uh, interpreting sociology and history has been revised only in the last two decades before that it was there why because the country also grew in uh, consciousness there were a whole lot of people who could articulate their, this thing a majority of the hindus are still in the reactive mode we have not done in a word we are ourselves not very well instructed on our own traditions etc so for us the duty is first to inform yourself to have very thorough knowledge about your culture and this thing and speak it out not just in social media but by active uh, academic and intellectual engagement at every level why wouldn't they it is our duty to speak out our version so why isn't the government doing it it is on us to put pressure on the government also uh, because uh, political motivations run counter to the civilizational motivations it is the duty of the people to question put that question to your representatives also dipanjali ji put a very interesting comment on uh, the chat where she said that her father used to read out a lot of history and that's what kept her uh, you know balanced so i think as parents also as sisters as siblings as grandparents uh, we need to mitigate this whole procedure till the time it's not sorted out by teaching our children and brothers and sisters the real history so that they can stay on the on the ground so that's that's one suggestion thank you yeah that i got from dipanjali and i heard it from a lot of people who managed to survive this marxist uh, holocaust while teaching <laughs> it is actually it is actually numbing generations it is all a cost of figurative it may be